Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. All right. Welcome. Hello. It's the beginning of a new week. It's a different kind of week, too. Last week, uh, two of our three producers, or really technically 1.4 of our 2.4 producers, were on vacation, which is why we ran three shows during last week that consisted entirely of chanting, uh, which was a mistake. You know, I and I take the heat for that. We shouldn't have just run chanting. It was a diff- different chanting each day, and people didn't really notice that. It was not the same chanting. Uh, but today, we're, we're actually, we have a full week of brand-new shows for you. Plus, on Wednesday, I'll be hosting The Wheelhouse Bound by myself because Mr. Jankowski is not here. So that's six brand-new shows for you this week. Today is The Scramble. We're trying to catch up with some of the news over the weekend. In the second segment today, we'll be talking to Bill Schur, contributing editor to Politico Magazine, uh, co-host of the Blogging Heads TV show, The DMZ. He's been following, you know, because, of course... I don't, know, I don't even know how to really frame this exactly, but but of course we've had an odd enough experience. Let's call it an odd experience with a person whose background was in a very idiosyncratic area of business, ascending to the presidency and appearing to not be interested in many of the rules of governance. And so what's the solution? Have Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> for president, because, of course, that would be so different. Uh, Anyway, we are going to talk about that in the second segment. The final segment, uh, actually, what I'm kind of hoping is that we can uh, take some of your phone calls about various things that are worming their way through your hearts. But I also want to talk a little bit about the uh, treatment uh, accorded to, and and I know that public radio audiences always contain people who don't want to hear anything about sports, but this is really kind of interesting. Uh, Colin Kaepernick, a at times very gifted NFL quarterback, but also a guy with very strong political opinions, who seems to be punished for those opinions to the extent of not being hired, even as a backup quarterback by any NFL franchise, although it would make sense least on the playing field for a lot of them to do that. So, but we're going to begin with the new Vogue, or is it a new Vogue, for prosecuting leaks. Last week on Friday, Attorney General Jeff Sessions said uh, leaks will be prosecuted, will be uh, sought out, rooted out. He's got a new counterintelligence unit uh, to ferret out leaks. So let's talk a little bit about what that means with Trevor Tim, Executive Director of the Freedom of the Press Foundation, and Kel McClanahan, Executive Director of the National Security Counselors, a Maryland-based public interest law firm, also an adjunct professor at the American University Washington College of Law. So um, I'm going to start with you, uh, Kel McClanahan. Um, what, what is different about this? For example, I, I do remember a moment um, fairly early during the presidency of uh, President Obama when we were talking about the fact that Eric Holder had more leak investigations and things that looked like prosecutions of journalists going than I think all of his predecessors combined or something like that. And the, the Obama administration did at a certain point begin to steer a slightly different course vis-a-vis that. But that suggests to me that prosecuting or wanting to do something anyway about leaks and specifically leaks to journalists isn't necessarily new. And and thank you for having me. I do agree with that. The idea of prosecuting leaks to the media has been around for decades. I mean, that's really what was behind the whole Pentagon Papers uh, leak investigation back in the 70s. 
what is new about this is really how they're going about it. When Attorney General Sessions had his press conference, he held a press conference about prosecuting leaks to the media and the need to investigate leaks to the media. And then within a couple of sentences, he stopped talking about leaks to the media and he started talking about releasing classified information to our enemies, to our adversaries. Uh, and he listed, oh, well, the Department of Justice has already indicted four people. And that's good, and leakers should beware. Well, of those four people, only one, Reality Winner, was in any way involved with the media. And the other two were people who were dealing with Chinese agents, or in one case, a guy who just kept 20 years worth of classified information in his house waiting for somebody to find it. And the problem with that is that when you paint all these horrible pictures of all the horrible things that happen when you release classified information to our adversaries and then say, and that's why we should prosecute leaks to the media, people start to form a, a correlation between the media and the adversaries and the leakers and the spies. And that's not a good comparison to have. Yeah. So in other words, you're suggesting that um, Sessions, in an, an adroit and probably self-conscious way, um, managed to tar journalists with a brush that should have been reserved for people engaged in various kinds of espionage or, in one case, just very idiosyncratic behavior. Uh, the guy who's basically hoarding stuff uh, in, in his house. That and and I think we should back up and say, you know, there isn't really just one kind of leak. There isn't. There might not even be five kinds of leaks, right? You've got uh, people who. Uh, do it in order to, I mean, you could have somebody like, say, Ivanka Trump, who maybe wants her liberal friends in New York City to know that she's not really down with some Trump administration policy. So she or somebody close to her might leak that, you know, that she and Jared don't really like that particular thing. Then you've got, you know, maybe a step up, the actual infighting that goes on in the White House, who's in control of what. They, people are motivated by something like that to leak. Then you've got people who are leaking stuff that maybe is classified, but, but you know, for various reasons, mean need to get out. And then there may be people leaking classified stuff where maybe it's not such a good idea if it gets out that soon and and on and on and on. So how do we make those kinds of discernments uh, about leaks? So I agree wholeheartedly. All leaks are not created equal and it's often the motivate, motivation of the leaker that really should drive the investigation. And the Espionage Act, which is generally the, the law that is used to prosecute spies and leakers, has a requirement for sort of the motivation, the, the mens rea, as the lawyers call it. And it's generally, you know, knowingly intends to do harm to the United States or should have known that it would bring harm to the United States. And that is behind everything. And when you are leaking classified versus unclassified, we'll call, quote unquote, secret information, well, there's a division right there that not every secret is a classified secret, and yet the administration seems to t treat uh, every leak as something classified, and the law doesn't even recognize that. There is no law to prohibit the leaking of unclassified information. There's administrative problems. You can be fired. You can lose your clearance, but you can't be prosecuted. And so I think all leaks for prosecutorial purposes we need to talk about are the classified ones, and the rest are just sort of the government trying to lash out at the people who are telling what's going on behind closed doors. But that's not actually harming the country. 
So Trevor, Tim, you know, obviously the press can't have one policy that fits the entire press and BuzzFeed may have a different policy than the Washington Post. But in, in terms of actual classified information, are there any understood standards about this? Are, are there any instances when it's as a general good practice thought that a reporter should maybe even say to somebody, you know what, you probably shouldn't give me this because it's classified? Well, I think that, that, you know, we have to differentiate between the press uh, and uh, the actual sources that give them the information. Uh, obviously, uh, the government considers um, uh, actual leakers giving information to the press uh, to be illegal. Uh, but it's been generally understood for four or five decades uh, that actually publishing this information, if you're a journalist, is actually protected by the First Amendment. And, you know, you can basically read the front page of The New York Times, The Washington Post on any day of the week, uh, and you're going to find uh, classified information within those articles uh, because the government considers so much of what happens uh, in the national security uh, and foreign policy realm classified. Um, But I I also think that we have to uh, realize that um, just because – somebody leaks something uh, does not mean that national security is not taken into account. Uh, I mean, take, for example, uh, the controversy last week over the Washington Post publishing transcripts of of Donald Trump's phone calls with foreign leaders. Um, You know, this wasn't just blindly posted to the Internet. Um, The Washington Post has dozens of editors and reporters who have decades of national security experience. And each time uh, a newspaper receives a leak like this, uh, they weigh the public benefit versus uh, potential harm to national security and even uh, actually ask the government beforehand uh, if they have any specific objections uh, to anything that could potentially harm national security. Um, so there is uh, much more of a process involved in this uh, than, than really just one person deciding uh, what to leak, um, which leads to, in almost all cases, very responsible conclusions. Um, Kel McClanahan, let's go back to that, the thing that Trevor's talking about, the uh, the leaks of these two conversations, phone conversations between the president and, and leaders of two other countries. I've seen a lot of coverage where people who would be probably pretty comfortable with a lot of different kinds of leaks, uh, even Pentagon Papers type uh, leaks of classified information, were uncomfortable with this, that somehow or other that should be a kind of conversation that a president should be able to have, you know, a fairly routine, if anything is ever routine with Donald Trump, uh, conversation with another world leader that uh, that just for the purposes uh, of a functioning government that can engage in diplomatic relations with other countries, maybe there's an argument against running the those transcripts. Do you buy that? I actually agree with that to a certain degree. I mean, this is one of those cases where the the downside of the leak actually outweighs the benefit of the leak. And a, a good example with the leaks of the transcripts is if foreign governments and foreign leaders think that there's a good chance that their conversations with the president will end up on the front page of the Washington Post, they're not going to talk to the president. And regardless of what you think of, you know, Mr. Trump as a good or bad president, you need foreign leaders to talk to him. And anything that makes it more difficult for the White House to do its legitimate job of representing the United States in foreign relations with other countries is a net downside unless there's something in the transcripts themselves, that's more than, hey, look, Trump is being dumb here. But there's actually somewhere, you know, I would only justify a leak like this if he were 
giving secrets to the other countries or something like that that we could actually point to he's harming the country. Just making him look bad, it sounds seems to be not worth the risk. So, Trevor, I spent 20 years in the newspaper business. I had this editor and publisher named Mike Waller who said one of the few things that kind of stuck with me about stuff like this. He said, we're not in the business of knowing stuff and not sharing it with the public, that he felt it was rather dangerous for the press to get into that kind of gatekeeper role. If you know something and it seems like it might be important, and yeah, maybe vet it in the way that you're talking about, but but as opposed to what um, Kel is saying right now, the, I think the press has this notion of, well, no, we shouldn't be making decision about, decisions about what's important or what's not or what's shareable and what's not. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. And I think, you know, when we're talking specifically about the transcripts of Donald Trump's phone calls with foreign leaders, there's there's a couple other things uh, that we need to think about. Um, you know, number one, uh, Donald Trump has been, uh, you, you know, not just, you know, put aside that he is, you know, seemed very erratic in, in these phone calls and, as Kel said, dumb. Um, you, you know, that's not the only newsworthy value here. Um, you know, Donald Trump virtually every week um, is tweeting about uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times claiming that they're Stories about him and his administration are fake news. Um, they are flatly not true, essentially uh, accusing them of lying. Um, well, there's a great way to prove that they're not lying, and that is to actually print verbatim uh, Donald Trump word for word um, so that uh, the American public can see who is lying and who isn't. Um, and, that, you know, we've seen Donald Trump lie actually about multiple phone calls uh, over the past couple weeks, uh, you know, blatantly claiming that he's been on having phone conversations with somebody where he actually hasn't. Um, so, you know, Donald Trump has kind of created this situation where I think, um, you, you know, leaks that uh, in other times may not happen um, now are kind of becoming more commonplace uh, because of the comments uh, that he is making to the public. But more broadly, you know, I think that, uh, you know, nobody is arguing that the president shouldn't be able to have uh, confidential conversations uh, with foreign leaders. But I think that we have to look at this specific case. Um, you know, there was nothing said that I think anybody can claim in these transcripts themselves violated or harmed uh, national security. Um, and if there ever was a situation where that could happen, again, this uh, process that reporters go through to weigh the public benefits versus the harm, I think would kick in. Um, and you know, leaders are, are going to talk to the president no matter what, just because they have to. Uh, I think they're much more concerned about what Donald Trump may actually say to them rather than uh, having their own comments leak to the media. Well, we could go back and forth with this for uh, for a while, but I, I'd rather um, jump the tracks a little bit and, and look at something else. Um, so, um, Cal, earlier on, uh, I think it was Trevor who made the point that um, – you know, it's it's essentially never illegal for the press to publish something that they have and that they know. Uh, there may be questions about how they get it. But I think when we hear about Jeff Sessions starting a new counterintelligence unit to look into leaks, even though, well, let's hear what, first of all, what um, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein said about how this affects reporters. This is on uh, with Chris Wallace on uh, Fox on Sunday. But the head of the Reporters Committee for the Freedom of the Press says what the Attorney General is suggesting is a dangerous threat to the freedom of the American people to know and understand what their leaders are doing and why. Your response? I think that's an overreaction, Chris. The Attorney General has been very clear. You know, we're after the leakers, not the journalists. We're after people who are committing crimes. Uh, and so we're going to devote the resources we need to identify who is responsible for those leaks and who has violated the law and hold them accountable. So, 
Cal, this strikes me as a little disingenuous, just in the sense that we know how this goes down because we've lived through it a whole bunch of times. They go after the leakers. Then they want testimony from the reporter about the leaker. Either tell us who the leaker was or we think the leaker is Cal McClanahan. Uh, We're going to subpoena you. We're going to put you under oath. You're going to tell us that Cal was the guy leaking to you. So then you're Judith Martin, you're James Risen, you're whoever. You say, no, I'm not doing that. You wind up in jail. Uh, right. That's how uh, this winds up prosecuting reporters, typically. Do I have that wrong? It's partially right, partially wrong. Uh, stepping back a second to what he said, that there's a reason for that. There's a reason that they're, they say they're not going after reporters. And that sort of ties into what Trevor was saying about how, well, the law is pretty well established that reporters can publish under the First Amendment and not be prosecuted. That's actually not set in law anywhere. That's more of a fact, a, a product of the fact that the federal government never brings charges against reporters for publishing them because the text of the law actually would allow prosecution of reporters just as someone who disseminates information that has been unlawfully obtained. But the government doesn't want to test that against a constitutional challenge. And so it's more by accident than design that reporters can publish. They've just not been prosecuted. I don't think they would successfully be prosecuted, but it's not set out in a court case that reporters may publish classified information without penalties. Now, what you're getting to, well, aren't you sort of doing an end run around that by bringing the reporters in and charging them with you know, contempt of court and not testifying? Yes, that, that is a very valid point, and it's a difficult point to deal with as long as we don't have a federal shield law. This is one of the main arguments for a federal shield law uh, to mirror the things that states have done to say reporters cannot be forced to reveal forces. Until then, Sessions is not lying, uh, and Rosenstein is not lying when he says we're not going after reporters. Well, until they do. But it's a technical truth more than an absolute statement of spiritual fact. Um, Trevor, you may want to respond to that, but I also want to just talk about, I thought the other thing that was remarkable about this, and I think Kel's made a great point about the fact that he Sessions started out talking about leaks to journalists and then started talking about a lot of things that didn't involve journalists at all. But that notion of making leaks a subject when, as we've already said, leaks are so many different things. Leaks are done for so many different reasons by so many different people. You know, instead of making, say, national security about our operations in Afghanistan an issue uh, or something very specific, just saying, well, we've identified leaks themselves as a problem. I think we've gone into kind of a new area there. I mean, if if we're going to have a counterintelligence unit that's not interested in investigating this specific leak or problems in the Defense Department or something, but leaks as a thing, I don't know, to me, that does seem a, a little bit like targeting the press. Yeah, absolutely. There's no way to fully separate uh, leaks and the press, uh, given that uh, it's a two-way street. You know, these leakers aren't posting things blindly to the Internet. They are giving them to reporters uh, who are then reporting them out and publishing them in in major publications. Um, And, you know, to go back to Sessions and, and Rosenstein's comments saying that, you know, Rosenstein specifically saying that, uh, it was clear 
uh, the Sessions was talking about just going after leakers and, and journalists uh, is just totally disingenuous and misleading. I mean, as you said, you know, they immediately started talking about the journalists who were publishing these leaks, saying that they were risking lives with impunity, uh, of course, providing no evidence. Uh, but then, you know, on the other side of things, uh, Sessions then started talking about how they were going to change the guidelines. Uh, for issuing or or at least look at changing the guidelines uh, for uh, subpoenaing reporters, uh, insinuating that they wanted to make it easier to take journalists to court or potentially uh, spy on them to find out the leakers. And then finally, at the end of the press conference, you know, there was a question uh, put to the deputy attorney general um, asking them, uh, you know, will they rule out prosecuting reporters and putting them in jail? Um, And unlike the previous administration, they actually refused uh, to respond. And so I think that um, that is certainly worrying for the press um, and also shows that, you know, their claim that, that journalists uh, won't be involved um, is, is highly suspect. So uh, I just want to uh, just pose a, a way of looking at this. I'm not even sure that it's exactly how I feel. But, but Kel, I do feel as though in my lifetime, I haven't really been aware of a presidential administration that really liked the press a lot. Some of them are good at manipulating it. Some of them are better than others. In general, there's kind of a certain amount of, uh, of hostility between administrations and the president. And then as you go beyond uh, a presidential administration and the press, then there are government agencies who also have all kinds of reasons for not wanting people to know what they're doing. And and maybe one way to look at this is that although this administration seems to have a special hostility towards the press and maybe a special interest in distracting people from actual problems, ethical problems that this administration has by getting them all worked up up about leaks to the press, that maybe there's just no way to build this perfect system. It's like, you know, let's say I work in the military somewhere and I know about kind of an Abu Ghraib situation and it's classified information and I go to you and I tell you about it and and then ultimately there's an investigation into me because you publish that information um, and then maybe, yeah, maybe that you do get subpoenaed about who told you and you, you won't say and you get threatened with prison. But ultimately, the information gets out. It's just that, you know, at the end of it, there's bumps, there's bruises, there's people whose whose lives are sometimes compromised, people maybe who wind up in prison. Maybe there's not a way to build a system where that doesn't happen. That's a very good point. I, I think that the thing that's being lost in all of the talking around this is that there are mechanisms for getting information, if not to the press, if not to the general public, to more people than currently have it. And that's sort of the entire whistleblower protection regime of going to Congress, going to Inspector General, going to various places with that. Is that perfect? No, nowhere near it. There, I would be the first person to talk about all the problems with whistleblower protection. But it's there. And I think that it is uh, dangerous for people to especially immediately go to the press as opposed to first trying to take things through the process. If the process doesn't work and you are really passionate about it, I can't advise you to take it to the press as a lawyer because that's against the law, but that may you that's the time to consider it, not I have something I want to get it out. And that, that's sort of where we are now. So, Trevor, what does the Freedom of the Press Foundation ultimately say about this? Do you guys have an organized statement, a policy? I mean, obviously, this newest iteration is as young as last Friday. But just in general, I mean, what's the pushback? 
Uh, well, you know, first, uh, with session, the Sessions' press conference, I think, was incredibly dangerous on, on multiple levels um, uh, because of the uh, issues that I raised uh, previously. But, uh, you know, in general, that I think that leaks are important to count uh, to uh, transparency and accountability. And oftentimes, uh, the only way uh, to really affect change within the government uh, is to go to the press, uh, given that the internal processes uh, can be so broken. And actually, uh, there are some risks um, when you go through the internal processes as well, especially on the national security side. Um, but that said, uh, you, you know, there is uh, inherent risks in, in whatever uh, decision whistle- whistleblowers make. Uh, and going to the press can um, and, some, and a lot of times does put your livelihood uh, and your life on the line, given that the government can bring uh, these prosecutions. So I, I think that these leakers and whistleblowers uh, who do uncover wrongdoing by going to the press uh, are actually very brave and courageous. Um, and, you know, I would, I would certainly reiterate that um, they are um, taking risks uh, by doing this, but oftentimes I think that that risk is sometimes worth it because um, it can affect change um, in many ways much more effectively than sometimes going through that internal process. Well, this has been a great conversation. Trevor Tim, Executive Director, Freedom of the Press Foundation. Tal McClanahan, Executive Director of the National Security Counselors, Maryland-based public interest law firm, also adjunct professor at American University, Washington College of Law. Now, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back and say, well, how could this get scarier? What if we had a president who already owned his private proprietary facial recognition software on 2 billion people? Yeah, Mark Zuckerberg for president. All right, we'll be back. was the president, his little finger on the button. He was doing his thing. Our new national anthem was my ding-a-lang. We were born and sold like in Monopoly. He had the most hotels in the land of the free. Locked up the opposition and the demonstrators, too. That would be me, and it might be you. Welcome back. This is the second segment of our show today on the third and final segment. It's going to be you and me on the phones, and I might uh, might preach a little bit. I want to preach about uh, Colin Kaepernick. Uh, But right now we're going to talk about, well, we just got through talking about ways in which uh, this particular administration seems hostile to the press and may be willing to do certain things in the name of counterintelligence that have not been done before. But we can look down the road, too, and see another kind of person who might run for president. As I said before, let's say it was somebody who already had facial recognition soft- software for two billion people. Uh, and that, of course, would be Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, Bill Schur is with us, contributing editor to Politico magazine, co-host of the bloggingheads.tv show, The DMZ. Well, welcome to our conversation, Bill. Thanks for having me. So... First of all, we have to start with evaluating the nature of the claim that Mark Zuckerberg is running for president. He's sort of quacking like he's running for president and swimming like he's running for president and laying eggs like he's running for president. Is he running for president? I mean, I I wouldn't say that with any sense of certainty. I mean, the argument that he is is that he's gone on this cross-country tour where he shows up uh, unannounced. And he, he, he posts about it on Facebook later. He says he wants to hit every state in the country that he hasn't visited before. And it's if he had about three to go when he began the quest. Uh, and he has a philanthropic foundation with his wife, Priscilla Chan, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. And he's hired 
uh, Obama's uh, old campaign manager, David Plouffe, to spearhead policy for that foundation, and most recently, Obama's uh, and Clinton's old pollster, Joel Benison. Uh, so all that has the hallmarks of someone thinking about running for president, but you could interpret the same data to say he is he, he wants to be a force in policy and in society, uh, and he wants to hire good people to help spearhead his philanthropic foundation. That's the end of it. So uh, he says no, uh, so we can't assume uh, otherwise. But I, I wrote my piece in Politico, uh, giving him some advice in case he is actually thinking about it, what challenges he needs to overcome. Well, so one thing he's probably thinking, and this can take us towards your advice, is I can do this because Trump could do this. I'm a total political neophyte. I haven't been on a board of education, you know, um, but I can do this because Trump has never been on a board of education and he's president now. Where's the flaw in that? Well, and Zuckerberg uh, it surely wouldn't be alone in thinking that way. There are all sorts of billionaires and business owners and celebrities and backbencher Congress people who are going to say to themselves, if Trump can do it, so can I. Uh, and one of, the, one of the biggest flaws in that is Trump's election was very fluky. Uh, he barely won, didn't get the popular vote, eked out a handful of states, uh, the Electoral College. He exploited the fact that we have deep cultural political polarization in this country, uh, and not every random person with uh, name recognition is going to be able uh, to pull that off. Uh, and particularly someone like Zuckerberg, who, you know, tr- Trump's been in our living rooms for decades, for better or for worse, uh, and he had been testing the political waters for some time. Zuckerberg um, has been very hesitant to take strong political stands. He provides a service that almost everybody uses, 2 billion Facebook users in the entire world. Uh, but people don't know a lot about him, and what they do know, they're pretty conflicted about. Uh, his, his poll numbers, to, to, since they've been taken, are slightly more negative than positive. You might use Facebook, but you probably feel very conflicted about it. You, don't let, you might be worried about your privacy or your safety or what it's doing to the political discourse. Uh, so he has a long, long way to go if he wants to build a bond with even a niche of voters the way that Trump had done over the course of the last several years. Right. It seems that bond is really important because when you look at Trump and Zuckerberg, another difference is Zuckerberg is a really incredibly successful businessman. I mean, Trump is kind of a middling at best real estate guy, you know, a lot of float, you know, a lot of debt in there. Got maybe a little bit better at licensing his products, a little bit better at ultimately being a, a reality TV show. Zuckerberg is running one of the most successful businesses in the history of the world. It has two billion users every month. Uh, And as they go up, uh, rather than the amount of engagement going down, the amount of engagement that they do with Facebook goes up. He's spun that off into a bunch of other incredibly influential social media platforms. I mean, one difference between Trump and Zuckerberg is when you really talk about incredibly successful billionaires, we're not kidding around with Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs) I mean, you know, Trump's a grifter. He's a flim flam man. Uh, and he has managed to convince people he's more successful than he really is, even though he basically inherited a pile of loot and didn't dwell that much with it at the the end of the day. But not only did Trump transition from being in real estate to being more of a brand licensor and reality TV show host, over the past 
five plus years, he built that bond with a, a conservative niche, basically by being a conspiracy theorist. I mean, you know, he had a abbreviated run for president in 2000 with the Reform Party. He was gonna he was gonna knock off Pat Buchanan. He was running to be uh, a kinder, gentler moderate. He was calling Pat Buchanan a racist and an anti-Semite. Uh, and but at that point, he he didn't have a bond with a faction of the country. Being a birther, as distasteful and racist as I would say it was, uh, at the end of the day, he built a bond with a constituency by doing that. Somewhat similar to how Ross Perot, in, in, uh, before he ran 1992, he built the bond with folks around the prisoner of war issue. That the, the American government was covering up the fact that there were prisoners of war in Vietnam, which is crazy to a lot of people, but there are a bunch of folks that really believe that. Uh, so they built that bond in that way. Uh, and I'm not saying you have to be a conspiracy theorist for president, uh, but you have to acknowledge that they did something to create a connection with voters as, as a jumping off point. I mean, we'd go from there, from them, if we went to Zuckerberg, we'd be going from them to not a conspiracy theorist, but the greatest enabler of conspiracy theorists, peddlers of, ba- of fake news, fraudulent information, stolen copyright information in the world, in the history of the universe. I mean, this is a problem for Facebook, right? That if Zuckerberg were running for president, one of the questions right away would be, isn't it true that you, you're your company played a big role in circulating false information that may have tilted the 2016 election in a certain direction. Is there any evidence that you really fixed that problem or that you care about it? Or do you basically succeed by getting people just to post all kinds of erroneous crap on your site? I mean, isn't that something that he would ultimately have to answer for? He'll get asked the question and he might well be the, you know, the, the, the brunt of conspiracy theories as opposed to the perpetrators of them uh, if he ran. Uh, I only pause in saying he has to satisfactorily answer those questions because we asked all sorts of questions about Trump's business interests. We pointed, Playbill pointed out that he had reams of, of conflicts of interest, that he was, had nothing in, in mind to separate himself from his business dealings, and in office has flaunted all of those norms gleefully with, without um, major consequence. Uh, so... If you have that bond with people, there is a lot you can get away with. There's a lot of things where you, you know, facts and reason and logic fall by the wayside if you believe a certain figure is on your side. That matters most of all. Uh, so if, if Zuckerberg got ahead of himself and put himself out there before building that sort of bond, all those questions you raise could be uh, could, could really uh, kill any candidacy in the crib. Um, another th- point that you've made that I think it's important is that when you look at these ascendant candidacies, these unexpected candidacies of 2015-2016, people who did well, I'm sp- specifically thinking of Trump and Bernie Sanders, whatever else you say about them, it was possible to identify certain ideas that they stood for. Uh, You know, I mean, uh, we can go back and forth about the validity of those ideas or whether, whether in the case of Trump, he really meant any of them. But we know he wanted to build a wall, for example. We know he wanted to crack down on immigration, get tougher uh, on on law and order type issues. We can list a whole bunch of things, uh, go after China in certain ways. I, I don't really, does anybody know what Mark Zuckerberg is either in favor of or against besides connecting? 
Well, he's teased a little bit. I mean, I mean that connecting, you know, he likes to say his mission is connecting the world, right. which could sound very airy-fairy, uh, could sound very self-serving. Uh, but potentially, that could be the beginning of a very clear contrast to Donald Trump's uh, narrow nationalism, where we're not trying to be uh, part of the global community anymore. We're, we're trying to build walls and keep the rest of the world out. Uh, there's a lot of issues that flow from that more uh, global outlook, whether it's immigration or having an international climate solution or how that affects uh, your foreign policy and national security. Uh, there's a lot of things that could come from that if, if you flesh it out. Now, Zuckerberg started a group a few years ago called FWD.US, or forward.us, which was which meant to be a big player in the immigration debate in Obama's second term. And a lot of people thought he's this guy's come from Silicon Valley. He, he, he knows how to build social networks. This could be a game changer in national politics. It was not. It did not solve the conundrum of how to get immigration reform through a politically polarized Congress and a politically polarized country. And Zuckerberg himself hasn't really been the face of it. He helped set it up, put the, put the money into it, but it hasn't really led on it. The group still exists. They, they oppose Trump's most recent immigration proposal to cap legal immigration, but Zuckerberg himself has not spoken out about it. So he has to, do, he has to pick that issue that builds upon his own life, stated life's mission of connecting the world that could get that community of voters who are very horrified by Trump's uh, wall-building philosophy and make them feel like uh, Zuckerberg really, had, really knows where to, where to take people and uh, in, in what direction he wants to take folks. You know, there's a certain irony in uh, just to go back to that conspiracy theory thing. So Trump ran on kind of that conventional uh, paranoid argument that there are there is this group of people who kind of control everything uh, and that and that that he was going to somehow or other break that frame. You know, that that, that all those people who've been basically uh, impeding the progress of average Americans, he was going to go in there, he was going to drain the swamp and he was going to clear out this sort of almost big brother like government that he was encouraging people to distrust. And and I'm appalled by Trump, but I actually do think Facebook is kind of big brother. I mean, they do have facial recognition software. They're being sued in Illinois for collecting biometric data without users. That would be our permission. We also know that they not too long ago ran a social psychology experiment tracking the people's mood reactions to certain stuff without the consent or review of anybody. Um, I, I feel as though this is not an entity and therefore a CEO who has demonstrated any kind of restraint or consideration for the average person. In some ways, he's the confirmation of Trump's otherwise false hypothesis. I don't know. Just react. I'm ranting here, but but go ahead and react. <laughs> and I think that big hissy noise might have been maybe he maybe he hung up or maybe Mark Zuckerberg uh, arranged for this call to end. Uh, but I think we have lost Bill Schur, which is fine because it is time for us to move on to another segment. I'm going to invite you to use the phones if you want to. You don't have to just bring up the things that we've talked about so far here on the show. Uh, I'm going to bring up another topic. Uh, that is the uh, odd plight of a young man named Colin Kaepernick. Uh, but we'd love to hear from you about anything that's on your mind right now. 860 275-7266. That's the number to call. 860-275-7266. I think I may have like ranted a guest right off the, the air. That's that's bad. I'm gonna run for- 
Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan with help from me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jesse Eisenberg. On tomorrow's show, the loud life and quiet death of the electric guitar. And now, back to Colin. Uh, speaking of Mark Zuckerberg, we got a call from David saying correctly that when you sign off on Facebook's terms and conditions, when you check that box, which had all, all sorts of too long, didn't read stuff in it, you're basically basically allowing them to do all kinds of things to you, whether you like it or not, because you've already basically said you like it. And although he is by and large correct about that, that doesn't make it right. And it doesn't make Mark Zuckerberg the kind of person, I think anyway, that can appeal to an already nervous and unsettled electorate. Uh, if you're nervous about the way things are right now, and in my opinion, you should be, I don't see how that would make you less nervous. You might be nervous in a different way. All right. Uh, the phone lines are open. They're always open, actually. Uh, I'm happy to talk to you about a variety of subjects. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. Feel free to call in. Uh, meanwhile, um, the other thing that I wanted to talk about today, one of the things we try to do here on The Scramble on Mondays is sort of mix things up a little bit, talk both about uh, politics and government, but also about arts and culture and sports. And sports, I don't know, public radio, always, we struggle to cover sports. Uh, I think there are, we probably have more listeners to public radio who don't care about sports than does almost any other form of mass media. Uh, all the same, there are interesting things that go on in sports. And I want to just direct your attention to the odd plight of a young man named Colin Kaepernick. Uh, Colin Kaepernick was the, at one point, starting quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers. Um, he ultimately lost his starting job. But also around that time, he started um, n not standing up for the national anthem. He would either sit or he would kneel. Um, and he did it basically uh, to call attention to issues connected to the Black Lives Matter movement and um, ways in which he felt there were historic inequalities in American life that were not being addressed. Um, this became very controversial because, let me just back up and say, I mean, the NFL is, for the most part, it, it has an ethos, and that ethos is more conservative than liberal, more pro-military than questioning of military engagement, more Republican than Democrat, more red than blue. I mean, however you want to put it. That's the ethos of the NFL. Now, that doesn't prevent bleeding heart liberals like me from being huge NFL fans. This is how obsessed I am. I'm a Green Bay Packers fan. On Saturday night, the Green Bay Packers have this, had this thing called Family Night. They have it every year. Basically, they open the doors of their stadium. The team goes into the stadium, and pretty close to nothing happens. They have a practice, you know. I mean, like just a practice, you know. They run some drills, run a few simulations of things. There's like a moment where the quarterbacks stand on one side of the field and try to throw the ball into this kind of hoop that's maybe about – two and a half times the diameter of a basketball hoop. And everybody watches. <laughs> like, wow, are they going to be able to do it? And I streamed that for a while on Saturday night. That's how sick and twisted I am. I actually streamed this completely meaningless event. I mean, 63,000 people were actually at this completely meaningless event. But I, I was you know, desperate enough or whatever to stream it. So I'm a big football fan. I like football a lot. But I also realize that there's an incredible toll taken on the bodies of the athletes and on the brains of the athletes, that it's a harder and harder thing to justify. And also that football has, I'm pretty sure, a secret set of politics that are pretty different from my own politics. But I don't know that these, this was ever really exactly spelled out until the time of Colin Kaepernick. So the other thing we know about football is that 
Football players often, when they are off the field, get in trouble, right? They hit people they're not supposed to hit. They take substances they're not supposed to take. Um, and there's almost nothing that you can't come back from. If you're a talented football player, uh, you know, if you really still got something to give the game, chances are you'll endure a four to six game suspension for whatever it was that you did. And then you'll be back. I mean, ex an exception would be the running back Ray Rice, who w was on uh, an elevator camera knocking his fiance unconscious, um, and he never really got back into the game. Now, it might have also been that he was sort of at the point as a running back where his proficiency was probably going to be diminishing anyway. Uh, maybe if he'd been younger and a little bit better at that moment, things would have changed. But basically, it's pretty hard to get excluded from NFL football if you have something to offer. So uh, this year, Colin Kaepernick did two things, and he did them pretty close together. One of them was he said that he wasn't going to do that thing anymore during the national anthem. He wasn't going to sit. He wasn't going to kneel. He'd made his point, uh, and he didn't need to make it anymore. Probably not co coincidentally, shortly thereafter, he became a free agent, which meant that he was um, out there on the market awaiting offers from any team. Any team could conceivably sign him, especially any team looking for uh, a backup quarterback. Uh, well, then it came to pass um, that uh, all eyes began to focus on Kaepernick and another quarterback, a quarterback named Jay Cutler. Um, by most measurements, Colin Kaepernick is a better quarterback than Jay Cutler. Jay Cutler's been around a long time. He's always had a lot of problems. He's had some problems getting along with his teammates. There have been claims that he uh, didn't study the way he was supposed to study for games, that he made lots of mental errors that seemed to be more the result uh, of a kind of, of laziness or lack of focus than, than anything else. Um, and so both Colin Kaepernick and Jay Cutler were out there on the open market. I can also say, once again, as a Green Bay Packers fan, I was always terrified when the Packers had to play against Colin Kaepernick. And like most Packers fans, I was really excited and happy when the Packers were going to have to play against Jay Cutler. That usually meant something really good for the Packers and lots of interceptions and things like that. Um, so over the weekend, the Miami Dolphins, who needed to add a quarterback to their roster, um, decided to add, add, you already know how this comes out, even if you didn't follow, you know how this comes out. They decided to add Jay Cutler. Um, now, you could concoct various arguments be, that because of the kind of game that they play in Miami or the kind of specific need that they had, um, that maybe Jay Cutler made more sense to them than Colin Kaepernick. I wouldn't personally believe those arguments, but you could make them. People do make them. Um, but the reality is Colin Kaepernick still doesn't have a job, and he's really a pretty good quarterback. I mean, his, his, his performance has declined over the years, but he obviously could help some team. I don't think there's any question that he's being punished right now or penalized for having political convictions. His political convictions have to do, once again, with objecting to things that we know are realities in the United States. We know there are historic punishing inequalities, particularly uh, ones that divide along the fault lines of race. Uh, we, we know that there's anguish in the black community about uh, shootings of, uh, of unarmed motorists. The kinds of things that he spoke out about and the kinds of things that made him reluctant to stand for the national anthem are things that they're not some weird conspiracy theory he thought up in his head. They're things that we know about. But ultimately, it, it seems as though there's not, if not a conspiracy, a sense in which for this, for this, he's going to be punished. For this, 
he's not going to be employable. I might add that he has this thing called the Colin Kaepernick Foundation that gives out like a lot of money to underprivileged uh, families in the in the Bay Area and stuff like that. And I just as I watch that, I, I have to say that uh, I, I keep asking myself, why do I continue to watch this sport? This seems so incredibly wrong that this guy whose attitudes, I might add, are probably pretty similar to an awful lot of his teammates, that he would be punished just because of what he believes. And I'm going to put one final little bow on this. So over the weekend, it was pointed out that Jay Cutler, the guy who, although I think arguably nowhere near as good a quarterback as Colin Kaepernick, now has a job in Miami while Colin Kaepernick doesn't. Jay Cutler announced that he had supported Trump, that he had voted for Trump. He had supported Trump. Kaepernick, by the way, said that he hadn't voted because he didn't see how either one of the candidates would address the kinds of problems that he was most concerned about. So he refused to vote. So the guy that who announced that he voted for Trump um, is got a uh, he's got a job. The guy who didn't vote uh, doesn't have a job. Um, it's okay to apparently have one set of political affiliations and opinions and maybe not the other. So just something for you to chew on, something for you to think on. Uh, thanks for tuning in today. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan. Great to have Betsy Kaplan and Josh Nalea back from vacation. We're at full strength. Tomorrow we're going to do a show about guitars and specifically whether the notion of the guitar hero still means anything. In other words, if Peter Frampton didn't exist, would we need to invent him? 